Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company, all right? We're a movement of everyday folks like you and me who are letting beauty break through the noise so it can transform our culture from the inside out. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm so pumped you're here. What's up, everybody? Welcome to season four, episode two of the Love Good Podcast. All right, today I get to sit down with my old friend, our regular contributor, Father Ryan Adorjan. You know, I was listening back to this episode and I laugh a lot whenever I'm with Father Ryan. I laugh almost as much with him as I do with my British friends. And I don't even know what that means. I just know that I am super joyful as so much of today's conversation unfolds. We kind of continue so much of the discussion that Dr. Ryan Hanning and I dug into last week, which is a discussion about culture, a discussion about really where we are right now as a society. But with Father Ryan, we begin to put together a, a practical vision of what it looks like to build a better culture, specifically a culture where the integrating principle is Jesus, which is, by the way, what a Christian culture looks like. And we kind of set the stage, and you'll know this, you know, within a few weeks of today, when we have Father Ryan Adorjant back into the studio, we're going to get into the real details of what it looks like to build a Christian culture, to, to build a culture that is frankly worth living in, right? One that allows us to thrive, one that gives way to human flourishing. So today we kind of do some assessment, some analysis, and then we begin laying the foundation for what's to come. So I'm super excited about this. And uh, by the way, this is just your first of two reminders. We've got a massive flash sale happening at lovegoodculture.com slash store, okay? Go to our website, click on the link that says store. Crazy things are happening. We have some items that are 50% off. We've got bundles, okay, of music, books, art, coffee, so many amazing things that, uh, again, really only go on sale twice a year. Like big time, deep discounts on Black Friday and this week, and this week only for about 48 hours. You want to get on the lovegoodculture.com slash store and buy a bunch of gifts, maybe back to school gifts. If that's happening, maybe just simply storing up this many months out for Christmas. It doesn't really matter. Just know that the Love Good Store is ablaze with deals as I speak. You guys are amazing. Stay tuned. I'll be back with Father Ryan in just a moment. For now, enjoy this beautiful little song called Imaginary Friend from Marie Miller's brand new full-length album called Little Dreams. He's from somewhere east of
Father Ryan Adorjan, welcome back to the Love Good Studio, man. I think you got me mid-slurp. <laughs> I did. Sorry about it. This is great. I mean, we're in season four. Season four. Did you think that day would ever come? I remember when we were in season one. What? Well, I wasn't on in season one, but I was listening in season one. That's cool. What's your favorite episode from season one? Season one is so long ago. And we're talking like Luke Smallbone for King and Country. Yeah. It was a lot of... Just musicians and stuff, wasn't Jenea it? Janea Trudell, big time. And she was kind episode. of the co-host, right? Yeah. Janea. Hi, Janea. Hello, by the way. Janea. I mean, we're talking Chris Allen. We're talking, I think, at the very end, we culminated with Drew Holcomb. That's what it was, I think. And that was kind of the big yeah. shebang. Big Did you have Matt Maher at all, season one? I think that was season two, because sure. it was around the release of his Christmas record. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. And it is such a joy to have you back because honestly, we've had co-hosts, we've had contributors, we're experimenting every step of the way to keep the Love Good podcast fresh. But maybe this is a good moment to just remember where you're from, why you come to Nashville a couple of times a year. You are, at this point, not the unofficial official, but the official unofficial, unofficial. Love Good Chaplain. <laughs> I mean, so much so that there's a little bit of like healthy competition with with other priests at this point across the country who are also patrons. Let them have it. We can share. <laughs> we can share the flock. You know what I, I mean? I loved it. I mean, I, I saw this specifically with one of, one of our favorite patrons up in Boston, Father Paul. Yeah. It was a great moment last night on Zoom, post live stream. And you guys were like, definitely feeling the jealous love. I love it. You know, I love the flock. It. I love it. <laughs> so I love it. Hey, big flock requires many shepherds. Hey, amen to that. So, amen to that. Sometimes, you know, certain shepherds got to go to meetings on Thursday nights and can't yeah. be with the flock. So, you got to have another shepherd. Yeah. And that's what's really interesting. So, you're a couple of years into like Thursday night meetings and kind of ordinary life as a priest. Ordinary life. Which is good. Yeah. Ordinary. You know, There's nothing ordinary about it. No. That's the point, though, I think. And I suppose that's the easy thing for all of us to miss is like, will we see priests or pastors, you know, on Sundays, most of us, and that is it. Yeah. And then there's the occasional celebrity that we see on YouTube, Father Mike Schmitz, Bishop Barron, your old friend, Bishop Barron. That's right. We go way back. But what is it? Like, just briefly give us a snapshot, the joys and the dramas of daily life as a Catholic priest in 2020. This is not exactly a moment in human history that makes a ton of sense to yeah. the average person, you know? Yeah, and I don't think there's ever been a moment in human history where it makes sense to the average person to be in persona Christi, mm. to claim, to make that claim. Now, of course, I'm sure some of our, our listeners are shouting for joy at, I, at me saying that, and some are <laughs> saying, I don't know about that, depending where you fall on the spectrum. But that's the claim, <laughs> baby. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. That's what the church has always taught. Not that I am Christ, not that I am Him, of course, but that I'm conformed to Him and that having laid down on the floor of that church on my ordination day, that I'm dead, mm. you know? So we had a, a talk in seminary once and the, the person said, you're so dead that they should carry you around this campus in caskets. And we said, that's a little too far. But the point remains, just as in baptism, we die and rise. So too, there's an indelible mark at ordination that, that, the old Ryan is dead and the new one has come to light. And I, I hope that I don't kill him too much. <laughs> but the point is this, that even, yeah, so that of course is very lofty and very theological and spiritual, of course, you know what I mean? But it also means I want to watch a Love Good live stream on Thursday night, but I can't because I have a meeting. 
You know what I mean? There's nothing ordinary about fidelity. There's nothing ordinary about being faithful to the life that you've been given, mm. right? That the life to which you've been called. So yeah. yeah, being a priest in 2020, I don't think is any different than being a priest in mm. 1717. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's just a different context, different challenges on the outside, but the enemy is the same. Yeah. But the Lord's the same also. The power is the same. It's a beautiful life. It's beautiful as well, because only a few weeks ago, you helped us kind of dive in in our last retreat of this 12-week series called Let Beauty Speak. You helped us dive into a beautiful, I think, perceptive, insightful understanding of human culture, but one that really can only come out of a life, I think, of prayer, of study, even having a context of where the world has been up until now. Yeah. And that's one of the great gifts of the priesthood is you did spend how many years studying and even now? Seven. Can, can, Seven and into an advanced two more, degree, right? Yeah. Now I teach, so. It's amazing. So yeah. the life of the mind is is very much at the heart of your life. Huge. At the heart of your, your lifestyle as well. And so help us maybe understand our historical moment. Yeah. Yes, in the context of of culture and and really your laying out of the church's vision for culture a few weeks ago, but also like, how did we end up in this place, right? Where COVID-19, this supposed pandemic obviously has shut down economies, yeah. has ruined a lot of people's lives. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, millions of people who have been infected personally. I just heard of a young man recently whose entire family has caught it been infected with coronavirus, all four of his grandparents passed away of it or with it. So these are still kind of trying and tragic times. And out of that, obviously came a a long stretch of time called quarantine that most of us are still scratching our heads about and trying to figure out what was that and why did that happen? And 40 million jobs lost later. What was the point? It's really a confusing time. And then suddenly you've got social unrest. You've got rioting and looting. You've yeah. got now looming just barely off on the horizon a presidential election. People like me get Say really anxious. You know, exactly. But <laughs> at the same time, people like you often remind me, ah, we've been here before. Yeah. This is not the world's first crisis. So yeah. help us understand this moment. So you're exactly right. We have been here before. Any good student of history will see that actually pretty much every generation has been here before. Not necessarily, obviously, a pandemic, but something along these lines. And interestingly, at least every generation of our life, you know what I mean? The people that we know, us, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. I don't know really anybody that knows their great-great-grandparents, but certainly our great-grandparents would have been alive during World War I. I mean, a lot of them are now gone, but the 20th century was one that was rife in like every single, (laughs) however you want to break it down. You want to break it down generationally. You want to break it down by decade. You want to break it down by whatever. Actually, every generation has been through something gigantic. World War I, first, then World War II, then the 1960s, the church went through Vatican II. Some say the church is still going through Vatican II. You know, the first hundred years after the council mm-hmm. are the worst, the most crucial as well. So there's upheaval in society. There's upheaval in the church. There's upheaval in the family. There's upheaval in our understandings about sexuality, about humanity, human dignity, about the economy, about... And look at the 20th century and you'll see like every possible 
vision of this mm. was tried. Mm. You know, capitalism, socialism, democracy, bureaucratic this, communism, you know what I'm saying? Marxism, etc. And they just keep going around and around and around and around, don't they? We see a kind of a resurgence of Marxism in, in many ways today. And so... It's just a merry-go-round, really, and it's very overwhelming to talk about. And so, when we talk about what is the church's vision of culture, you have to understand, first of all, what is culture? Culture is very difficult to talk about because it's such a vague word. Webster defines it as the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. And that's Um, how most of us think of it, you know? Exactly. Or another definition they give is the the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize an institution. You know what that sounds like to me? What? Sounds like my undergraduate degree. (laughs) Human and organizational development. Yeah. Do you know what that was all about? No. Developing the skills attitudes, and knowledge necessary to be effective leaders in your communities, organizations, and families. Wow, somebody was a brand ambassador. (laughs) You still are. But the actual, the, the last definition that Webster gives is that culture is an integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior that depends upon the capacity for learning and transmitting knowledge to succeeding generations. Mm. So I think of all those definitions, the church kind of hangs on, especially to the last one, because something learned and transmitted through generations, we call that tradition, mm. right? Yeah. But it's an integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior. So what I think, what I believe in terms of kind of the, the guiding principles of my life and what I do are all integrated yeah. around a central principle. So <laughs> if I go to professor on you, you just stop me, okay? Mm. But there's a great kind of teacher of, of Christian culture named Christopher Dawson who wrote two awesome books. One's The Formation of Christendom. And he's talking about how the heck did we get from out of pagan Rome and into a, a kind of Christendom or the Christian culture like of the Middle Ages, for example. How did we go from that without really abandoning in anything in the past? You reject certain things that you have to reject, but it's not as if we're taking a wholesale chop. Mm. What we're seeing today is the desire for a wholesale chop. Yeah. Everything in the past is bad, yeah. which is just as bad as saying everything in the past was good. Right? No, no. You have to find the way to, bal- to find that balance between those two ideas. You don't mm. want to become an antiquarianist. You know what I mean? Okay, so Dawson, anyway, he says that the history of the West, of the Western culture, is really a kind of coming together of two major things. It's the the cross-section of human history and divine history. Mm. So he says that Christian history, the history of the West, is the history of a divine intervention in history. Wow. So the story of the West is the story of a divine intervention in human history. History and divine intervention which remember that suggests that if you have human history going on and you have divine history coming into it, it means that divine history has been going on also. And the two are finally intersecting definitively, finally, not foreshadowed, not predicted through prophets, not anything, but definitively in the person of Christ. And this is how he defines Christian culture. That's not how he defines, Mm -hmm. like he wouldn't say that's what it is, but he says, if you want to understand it, you have to understand 
what it is ultimately. Yeah. The view of it is this cross section mm-hmm. of, of the human story and the divine story. That's cool, man. But of course we know that if you zoom out the timeline long enough, the human story juts off with the divine story yeah. and it's rejoined. Yeah. But every culture has a religious component. Even mm. before Christianity, every culture has a religious component. And if you study, like if your study of history only includes the 20th century, you will not see that claim because like, that's when cultures began to move away from it. Right. I mean, even like study of philosophy, which for me was very brief in college, it began with Descartes. Yeah. There was no sense of anything before the 16th century. And yeah. sometimes maybe that's a very American sort of approach. We just forget a lot has come before us. A lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything more about that, but yes, that's true. (laughs) So if you, what does this mean? It means that from the very beginning, ultimately of human history, every culture has had two major components. Mm. Well, it's had the religious aspect and this reveals two things about human culture. Number one, that there's a tendency in the human person to worship the, the person wants to venerate something higher than himself. The human person acknowledges throughout history mm. a power greater than himself. Modern historians and, and thinkers or whatever would say, well, this is just the God of the gaps, that the people you know, in the Aeneid sailing across with their help from the Greek gods or the Incans at Machu Picchu, that they're just... They don't know anything. They think that the sun is pulled up on a string, you know, by the God of the whoever. And now we know how the earth turns and etc. But you don't want to downplay the faith of people because it reveals something about the way that the human heart operates. And I'll talk about that in a minute. This is so, what Giussani calls the religious sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Giussani calls it, it's like this innate Maybe you can't point to it. Maybe you can't explain it, but it is a religious sense. Mm -hmm. It's a sense that I ought to be moving always toward integration with something bigger than myself. So you have worship, but then you also have prayer and sacrifice. Yeah. That not only do I know that there's a higher power and I am somehow subservient to him, but I establish some kind of communication with that power. Can we just pause on this for a second? Worship, prayer, and sacrifice. Yeah. So there's a lot of brilliant minds out there that I've been maybe listening to a little bit too much since quarantine because there's just not a lot to do some days. And they're beginning to analyze a lot of what I would call our post-Christian society, our, our deeply secularist culture from the angle of religious thought and culture. Yeah. So, you know, in the midst of the riots breaking out in streets and cities all over our country in the midst of uh, quite a bit of virtue signaling on social media, to put it lightly, there was this mob mentality that was falling into those same three categories. What was it again? Prayer. Worship. Worship. Prayer and sacrifice. Yeah. And they started to draw these pretty distinct, and I thought insightful parallels with, you know, what you might call a more maybe Marxist or at the very least atheist approach to those deep innate human needs, right? To bow down, to make reparation, to make in some ways sacrifices for your own sins or the sins of your forefathers. And suddenly you see that as people are kneeling in the streets before people that they believe to have been oppressed up until that point. 
And I saw this one amazing interaction. This is like on Instagram or something. And this guy goes, I'm sorry, I will not bow down to you. I bow down before one and that is God himself, you know? And just this, this deep religious sense gone haywire. Yeah. And I don't know how, you know, reflective that is of American life and culture. It is certainly reflecting a, what seems to be a very loud minority of people who have forgotten the mercy they can find in the person of Jesus Christ through a Christian understanding of their own soul and of culture at large. And they've perhaps forgotten the, the need that they have to worship God in a way that is uh, a bit more structured, a bit more traditional. You know, as Chesterton put it, tradition is the democracy of the dead. It's to believe that actually the, the thoughts and the, the, the culture and the traditions of people who have gone before us really do matter and they yeah. should inform our lives. And as you put it right now, we're seeing this mass rejection of all that once was. It's very scary to me. Very scary. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I mean, on the one hand, you look at it and you say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? <laughs> on the other hand, though, these people never learned how to think. Mm. They're our age. And I never learned how to think until I went to the seminary and yeah. studied philosophy. Normally, that would have been taught earlier. Logic, especially, would have been taught earlier. But no, I, I, I don't think that they, I don't think that there's really an understanding of what's being rejected, mm. you know? And so a lot of us are, are, we get all upset, you know, especially like in Illinois and the governor closed everything, you know? <laughs> and people are like, but he, he, he doesn't understand that we want the Eucharist. And I want to say that governor J.B. Pritzker could care less if you receive the Eucharist or not. He couldn't care. He, he just, and that's not to say that he's a bad guy and he's anti-Christian and he's going to close the churches forever. It's just that he doesn't care. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but you have to be able to look at it from the, from the perspective of these other people and to say, it's not that he's out to get you. Mm. The governor doesn't, it, it, like, he's not going to send the National Guard in to rip me from my bed in the night, you know? He doesn't care <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah. He wants to be secure, legally, whatever. Right. So the point is that we do see a move now toward atheism, and atheists have been present in every culture, mm. but I don't know very many true, there is no god or higher power atheists mm. i don't know very many i know a lot of people who say i'm an atheist because i reject the christian god well fine you reject the christian god but does that mean there is no god for you you know theos is just kind of this word for like yeah. highest power so really probably you are your own god mm. you know what i mean mm. if your god lets you do whatever you want your God is probably you. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just kind of something that we need, I think, as Christian people and as evangelists in the world today to know that, mm. that it's not that people are rejecting God or the idea of it all together. It's just that they have no idea even what the Christian God, who he is, yeah. what the Christian church really teaches. Mm. This is the fault of the culture and of the church. The Christian church. Yeah, that's right. It's the fault of both. It's funny, Bishop Sheen puts it like this. He says that there's rarely an atheist that you've ever met that has built a whole philosophy around the non-existence of God. It's almost always, he says, a cry of wrath. Non serviam. Yeah. I don't want to live my life according to any philosophy but my own. So it's more of a, a lifestyle or morality that informs your philosophy rather than the other way around. And kind of like you, I mean, 
I had a pretty decent, you know, Christian culture around me and Catholic education growing up, but it took going to seminary to learn how to think and just like sift through all the muck. Yeah. It's a lot of muck out there, you know? It took going to seminary to learn how to think. And it took a master's degree in Catholic studies to learn the history of Christianity. Wow. That's the crazy. history of the church. To yeah. read the primary sources and to go to and when you yeah. Anyway, that's like we could go many different so directions good. at this point, but it's just important to know that I don't think a lot of people have forgotten the mercy because they've never known it. Mm. You know, it's being offered to them. Mm. And, and we've said it before uh, that the human heart knows infallibly what corresponds to its longing. And that's why you do meet a lot of people, like especially people in prison, for example, who have lived these nefarious lives and then they become Christians in prison mm. because they find in the claims of Christianity a sense of true comfort, a sense of true peace. And if we want to have any semblance of, of a Christian culture today, because Christendom is dead, Christendom has been dead for 300 years or more. Yeah, It's not around, you know, the famous picture of a New York City skyline with the crosses on it in 1950 on Easter Sunday. You've seen that picture, I'm sure. Okay, that was a cool time, but it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, And it's never, ever going to come back. In our probably in our lifetime, mm. but if we want to have any a return to a Christian culture, then it's going to require us to return, I think, to the kind of initial vigor of the early church, mm. to study the early church, to read the accounts of the early church. How did they live? Not just what did they do, but again, the integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior. Mm. So, what did the early church? think? What did they know? What had they seen? What was the power that they had given their lives over to? Mm. What made it possible for the early Christians to go rejoicing to the lion's den? Yeah, man. What was it? And it, I, I mean, some of that story, of course, is hagiography, right? Some of that story is true, mm. that people went rejoicing to their death. Yeah. Because why? Because they understood that their death, that they were about to die, had already been conquered. Mm. And that the sins of the people who were committing that against them, those sins could easily be forgiven. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps even by their own sacrifice. And I, I suppose that would be a, a mark of hope, you know, in For the, sure. the life and the heart of a Christian. That they can even look around at a world that's gone haywire and still have profound hope, not even just in their own eternity with God, you know, yeah. but even in that of, of those around them who are, you know, in maybe more visible ways than them <laughs> living in pretty direct contradiction to the, to the life that God has called all of us to, invited all of us into. I suppose that's where I, I sometimes struggle. It's just wondering how do I, how do I actually stay humble in the midst of it all and not become a self-righteous jerk? It's just very easy to look at what's going on and to think, well, I mean, I got my act together, but the world, I mean, they're just freaking out right yeah. now you know we might touch on it you know in a few episodes but just this need to recognize the enemy within you know that in fact there's a uh, quite a bit of light and darkness in my own soul what's wrong with the world i am i am <laughs> thank you gk i am yeah and you know what is it going to take what is it going to take for us I mean, Christians need to be more vocal about the fact that they stink sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, there's a, a kind of a story going around on Facebook a few weeks ago about a huge family, a homeschool family that had converted to Catholicism and then had left the church. Yeah, wow. Because the people in the church, uh, it, wow. shout out to Dr. Ryan Hanning yesterday for grilling us all about the essential things, mm, right? Mm-hmm. That we have lost sight of the essential things. Guardini in the in the Lord in his yeah. book, The Lord, asks the, he calls it the embarrassing question of whether the redeemed shouldn't look more redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the point about the early church is that these people looked redeemed. Yeah. They lived redeemed so much so that their joy, <laughs> their freedom, their confidence in this person named Jesus was so powerful and overwhelming that the people in charge needed to get rid of them. You mean the early church wasn't fussing about like liturgical rubrics and theological nuances? That wasn't <laughs> Well, the, the early church you know? was definitely fussing about theological That's true. Uh, That's true. You know, nuance, of but course. But that was like the Trinity. I mean, they were right. talking like, like They were level. defining different <laughs> things, you know what I mean? But, well, I think the priest had his arms. Was that an obtuse <laughs> or acute <laughs> angle? Somebody get the protractor because mass <laughs> might not be valid. You know, yeah. it's like, shush. Yeah. Shush. And, and for a non-Catholic, where's the parallel there? Because I think even within evangelical Christianity, there can be that that lean towards legalism. Sure. That lean towards self-righteousness. And I think it's because, I mean, especially as you're growing in your faith and there's virtue on the rise, it can be very easy to stop giving God all the glory. So, what, what does that look like even in kind of a non-Catholic culture that's still very Christian? What do you think? You got any like experience of that or, or sense of that? I just have a little experience of it. And I obviously don't want to pretend like I, I know it intimately because I really don't. But there is definitely the same kind of infighting and back and forth between a lot of it has to do with interpretation of scripture. Good call. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? That, well, you know, the old pastor believed that this passage meant this, but now the new pastor thinks it means this. So right. we're all going to go away or we're going to, you know, and there are factions. You see this in Catholicism too. Like For when sure. a new pastor comes, yeah. some are remain loyal to the old pastor and some remain loyal to the new pastor and some just leave the church altogether. And some people come because the old pastor is gone, you know. So there's that kind of thing, I think. But I think it, it probably is just a lot of the same mm. that we do, you know yeah. what I mean? The style of music, takes over well what's really the best style of music can we have guitars if we're a liturgical church can we have guitars in our liturgy what's the role of the piano what does the volume of the organ mean that we're more holy um our music director in the seminary used to shout slow does not mean holy you know, and that's important because sometimes we get, we put ourselves into these. It's almost like a quasi sort of Pelagian box that yeah. that I will manufacture the environment in which I will become holy. Yeah, yeah. You know, God will. And we talked about this a little bit on the, one of the last live streams that we did, right? That we try to reduce faith either to piety or to like discourse. Mm. We try to have either you become totally pietistic and then you reduce your faith to sentimentality and it becomes totally irrelevant. There's those Christians in the corner who crying out again, wailing around, you know, but they're unable to talk to me and answer my questions mm. about the practical implications of this life. Yeah, that's right. Or you have discursive intellect, and if, if especially if you're a priest or a pastor, and all you have is discursive intellect, you become a monster because yeah. you look down on your people for being so stupid. Yeah. 
And then people say, you become irrelevant that way too, because then people say, well, I know what the church teaches. I know what, what the Christian life, you know, ideally looks like, but this man or woman could not make me feel loved. I did not meet Jesus in that person. Mm. So it can't be that real if the person who knows everything hasn't been taken over by it. So how can it be real? But the religious sense is what prevails. Mm. Why does it prevail? Well, I want to propose that Western culture is a combination of three components. Dawson says it's two components, but I think I'm going to add a third. Mm. Dawson says that Western culture is a combination of biblical faith and Greek thought. Mm. The third one I'm going to add is Roman law or the Roman way of life, the Roman vision of the world. So you have Greek thought, biblical faith, and and Roman way of life, basically. But I I really see a correspondence there to the three transcendentals, Mm. that you have the true Greek thought, you have the beautiful biblical faith, and you have the good Mm. Roman law and vision of life. And this reminds me very much of a Love Good Academy that you put out. Yeah, we did this. I think initially for our apprentices and then for our patrons only a few months ago. That's right. If it's okay, we've just opened up a very exciting, very alluring loop that we can close on the next episode that you're a part of. Because I think this is something that I'm still trying to wrap my head and my heart around. Yeah. I watched that talk a couple of times. I edited it here in the studio. I'm sure many of our patrons have seen it as well. We got to really dive into what those three things really look like. And yeah. perhaps we can draw some modern parallels of where those are expressed in our current life and culture, in America, in Europe, throughout the Western world. Father Ryan, what a great start to season four. We'll see you sooner than later. Hope so. Peace. Bye. We've got Jesus, joy, hope, life, and love. We've got violence, death, sin, war, and fear. But if there ever was a song that everyone could sing together, I've got it right here. Because we don't have to sing words that mean anything that might make us disagree. It's inadmittedly ignorant. In harmony, but at least we all can sing along with Sha La 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 La. You're listening to an oldie but a goodie called Shalala, the peace and harmony song from Kevin Hyder's 2010 debut album called The Salzburg Revolution. Now, the reason I'm so excited about this is this was my introduction to Kevin Hyder. This album blew my mind 10 years ago. It still blows my mind today. Kevin Hyder is also going to be in Nashville in only a few weeks. I'll be back in Nashville. We're going to be hanging out. We're going to be doing a live stream for you guys. We're going to be doing an epic couple of podcasts together. So if you don't know who Kevin Hyder is, you just need to get on Spotify, hop on his website or his social media and get to know this man because he is a giant in my mind. Artistically, intellectually, he's a giant and he's one of our oldest friends here at Love Good. So I cannot wait to be sitting down with Kevin and 
I can't wait for continued conversations with Father Ryan Adorjan, with Dr. Ryan Hanning. So many good things in the pipeline. In fact, next week, we're sitting down with an award-winning artist by the name of Josh Wilson. I'll never forget first hearing Josh's music. Ah, I was over 10 years ago. This guy is a staple, particularly in the Christian music industry here in Nashville. Absolute rock star, true talent. And we've got so much to talk about with him. So tune back in for that. And as you know, as I've already mentioned, the Love Good store is currently ablaze with deals. So go to lovegoodculture.com slash store. Get your hands on coffee. Get your hands on t-shirt. Get your hands on apparel that you can't find anywhere else, as well as autographed albums, autographed vinyl, books, and so much more, okay? Lovegoodculture.com slash store. That's where you should be. That's where all your friends and family should be. That's where you should be buying every gift for the next, I don't know, six months of your life, okay? Lovegoodculture.com slash store. You guys are amazing. Hope you're having a beautiful, beautiful week. Cannot wait to see you next time around with Josh Wilson. In the meantime, stay classy. San Diego, Nashville, Tampa, New York City, wherever you find yourself, stay classy. We've got a lot of love and a lot of prayers for you here in Music City, USA. We'll see you soon. Peace. Massive thanks for tuning in to the Love Good Podcast. If you like this week's episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, share it on social media, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and then join us on the front lines of building a better culture by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. Our patrons get all kinds of incredible exclusive content, such as a weekly long-form video of the podcast, a monthly live stream house concert with our artists, and a seasonal package that will raise your standard for music, books, and art forever. Thanks again for tuning in. It's an honor to accompany you as you change the world.